All right. How's everybody doing? Good? All right. Let's grab our Bibles and go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to take a look at a message this morning called 12 Essential Prophecies About the Messiah. Now, a couple terms that we need to uh, define here before we start off is, first off, the word prophecy. Now, most of the Old Testament contains prophecy in the sense that it's foretelling. All right? Now, here's what that would mean. Forthtelling would be an example of the prophet saying, guys, God has told me, God is speaking through me, that you guys have seriously messed up, and here's what you need to do. You need to repent and come back to God. Alright? So he's telling them what God is telling the people. The prophet literally is the mouthpiece of God. There's another sense of prophecy, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, and that is foretelling. For example, saying that something's going to happen in the future, saying it with certainty when the event has not actually yet happened. Um, Anybody in here fan of um, time travel movies? Anybody? All right, three. All right, great. So I'm just going to go with it anyway. Uh, anybody seen Back to the Future? Any of those movies? Part two or three? Okay, all right, more. There we go. Um, in the in the second part of that movie, you've got um, you've got Marty, right? And he buys the book. Remember, it, it was a it was Gray's Sports Almanac, right? That had all of these sports statistics. And what happened is Biff, the bully, found out about Doc's time. Now, if you have not seen this movie, I've not gone crazy. You're like, what in the world is he talking about? So the the bully finds this book and finds Doc's time machine. So what he does is he goes in the future, right? right? He's got this book that tells what's going to happen in the future. So he begins to make all of these bets and he makes this huge financial empire and everything goes crazy until everything gets worked out. The point of that is simply we're always trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future. Some of y'all don't believe me. For example, how many of you ever check weather.com? All right. Some of y'all, it's the Cinternet. I don't. Okay, what about cable? Anybody watch Weather Channel? All right. Anybody ever, um, you know, if you're trying to do investment, you probably don't just write, pull out your checkbook and say, let me put this amount of money into this fund without any type of research. It's not really a good idea, is it? We're always trying to find out what's going to happen in the future. Not in terms of trying to be some type of of prophet, but we're trying to figure out how to make the best out of our lives. And people have always tried to do this, but, but what we're going to look at this morning is to take an example from the Bible of God way back in the Old Testament, literally thousands of years ago, telling a prophet... There's going to be event after event after event that's going to happen. Giving very specific guidelines for these events being fulfilled. So that we in this age, looking back on many of the prophecies that have been fulfilled, and a lot have not, speaking in terms of the end times, in terms of the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, yes, they've been fulfilled. But so that nobody could look at the world, look at history and say, God, where are you? God's saying, I've been here all along. Now, there is something that I, this is our big word for today. Usually we have about one, one a week. Here's our concept. It is called open theism. 
Nobody's writing that down and probably for good me. I mean, nobody's been like, yes, that I got Lord. Thank you. Open theism that blesses my heart. Here's what it is. It is the belief that God does not know the future. It means that this theological position means that God, check this out, that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, God, the one who keeps everything going, God, the one who created you and me, God is learning about the future as we go. So if that's true, then what God is not, God is not what? God. God would be at best maybe a, Somebody who's a pollster. You, you ever talk to a pollster, right? They call you on the phone and they ask your opinion. And sometimes the questions are framed in such a way that the only answer is the answer that will support their position. If God does not know the future, then what is going on is God is really a pollster. He's like this cosmic pollster who gives out guesses and probabilities. And even furthermore, if you look in the pages of the Old Testament, God's putting all of his eggs in one basket. Here's what I mean by that. God is saying time and time again, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. God's not saying, well, this, maybe if I can work it out, guys, I'll send a Messiah. But, you know, if Satan messes up my plan, sorry. God God is not giving a term of probability. What he's doing is he is saying these things will happen. Now, if God really doesn't know the future, go with me on this. Put on your floaties, about to get deep. If God does not know the future, then God's prophecies about the future are not fully honest, are they? Because if you or I don't really know what's going to happen, how can we say with certainty, telling other people, oh, this will happen when we really don't even know what's going to happen? I'm here to tell you today, guys, that God does know the future. Y'all okay with that? When you see the page of the Bible, man, God does know the future. He knows what's going to happen. And not only that, but God is so powerful, as it says in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 28, that God works. God God works. That's a cool term, isn't it? That God works, not us. God works all things together for what? Help me out. For good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Now, I have a couple of books here. This is Nerd Day, if you haven't realized it. At this point, somebody will say, now, Jeff, what about Nostradamus and his prophecies? I mean, when I was buying a pack of gum, I saw next to the National Enquirer, which, by the way, by the way, just a little hint on life in general. Don't put a lot of stock into things that you can find next to the National Enquirer. If you're getting your information for your life next to Snicker bars and Wrigley's gum, you might want to reconsider and go a little bit deeper. Y'all okay? We've got a link, and Matt uh, helped us with this. And by the way, tell Matt, great job on the website, because he did a great job on the website. It's continually being updated. We now have a link. If you go to our webpage, you go to Got Questions, then you go to Theological Queries, and then underneath that, there's a subheading called False Teachings Question Mark. We have linked an entire documentary of about 30 minutes put out by a great group uh, headed by Ray Comfort, and they expose Nostradamus and his prophecies in this sense. Nostradamus does not give prophecies the way that the Bible would. For example, Nostradamus will give very general things, kind of like palm readers. 
or fortune tellers. Most fortune tellers and palm readers, this is basically the gist of their prophecies, quote unquote. I see in your future you will meet an amazing person. Well, I could have told you that. Guys, this is the time for you to look over to your significant other if she's here and be like, I already do. What's going on? I mean, this is a time for you to work your game. So seriously, seriously, though, what you find in Nostradamus is just generalities, things that you could you could interpret to mean anything. If you go to a palm reader, if you go to any type of a, of a so-called fortune teller, they're going to give you some vague, some crazy thing. And by the way, we don't have time to get into that. We will in the spring. Virtually all of that stuff is rooted in demonism. Don't do it. Stay away from those things. So what we're going to look at here very quickly is from Romans chapter 1. That was the introduction. Y'all okay with that? So we're like, oh, son, this is going to be a long one. All right, Romans chapter 1. That was to kind of set the stage on what we're talking about, what we are not talking about. We're not talking about Nostradamus and his prophecies. Some of y'all just had a heart attack. All right, number one, verse number one, chapter number one in the book of Romans. Here is the text. The Bible says, Paul... A servant of Jesus Christ called to be a what? An apostle. An apostle, remember our study from Ephesians, means literally one who is sent. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his what? Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Holy Scriptures means the Bible. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Now notice that all sinners around did Jesus rise from the dead. Then it says, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 5, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name. Check this out. This is awesome. Among who? Among all nations, all peoples, all ethnic groups. Verse number 6. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What an amazing, amazing passage. And notice there in verse number 1, you see, and if you want to take notes, we've got it on the back of our, um, our worship guide bulletin. And uh, the first aspect there. By the way, this is the first alliterated sermon I've ever preached here. Normally I don't do alliteration because a lot of times it's cheesy, but I have three main S's. For those of you who are waiting for this, that may have been your word from the Lord. You're like, yes, alliterated outlines. You may be a lame person. So Paul, it says the servant of Jesus Christ. Here's the source, the apostle Paul, the source of this writing. Apostle Paul is saying, God is giving it to me to give to you. Now notice that he says the apostle Paul what the the servant literally the bond slave of Christ now a bond slave was a person who could be free but because they loved their owner so much they said i will be your slave voluntarily for life now a little bit about the apostle paul remember he wasn't the persecuted guy before he became a follower of jesus was he he had friends remember he had his whole group that stoned stephen he had friends he had prestige he had honor. He, even, he was a Roman citizen. Man, he had all of this stuff, but then one day Jesus met the Apostle Paul when he was still Saul, and he got saved and everything changed. 
He went from somebody who had what the world says is success to what God says is a success. Remember the Apostle Paul said, all things I count as loss for knowing Christ. So secondly, first off, we see the source of this passage is the Apostle Paul. Secondly, we see the signs, and that is it's been promised beforehand. Notice there in verse 2, he said that God has given us these prophecies beforehand. Well, how did they come about? Notice he says, through the prophets in his holy scriptures. Now at this point, there's always somebody who says, Now Jeff, I've heard some people say that Jesus didn't actually exist as a real person. That Jesus is just a figment, a historical fictitious person made up by his followers. And I have here the autobiography of Bertrand Russell. And uh, how many of you have heard of Richard Dawkins, the God delusion, anything like that? Okay. Richard Dawkins, this is where, this is kind of the intellectual forerunner of Richard Dawkins. And here's what he said in his book, Why I Am Not a Christian. Bertrand Russell said, historically, it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. And if he did, we do not know anything about him. Uh Oh, really? Well, what about Tacitus? This was a Roman historian, the first and second century. Here's what he wrote. He is a pagan. He is a Roman. He is not a Christian and he doesn't like Christians, but here's what he wrote about whether Jesus was a real person. He said, Christus, which is another name for Jesus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Anybody remember the Christmas story being read? Who is right? Right. You had like crazy great Herod then. And then when Jesus died, who was the one who washed? Whoa, whoa, this, what? Whoa, whoa, y'all okay? See a little smackdown coming here? This is not even from a Christian source. This is from a pagan author. Not only that, but Josephus, who wrote the Antiquities of the Jews, and he fought in the Roman War, which was 66 through 70 AD. Here's what Josephus said. And there arose about this time Jesus, a wise man, if indeed we should call him a man. For he was a doer of marvelous deeds, a teacher of men who received the truth with pleasure. That comes from Josephus, Flavius Josephus, Flavius Josephus, because he took the name of his Roman. This is a guy who was basically a turncoat. When it came down to the Alamo type of situation, he gave up on his Jewish brethren and began to serve the Romans and even served as a military, military leader against his own people. This is not a guy who necessarily loved Jesus, but he recorded that Jesus actually lived. Then also you see throughout the Gospels, and they were eyewitness accounts. And thinkers and students, anytime you study history and you find an ancient account to where the person said, I saw this, that is absolutely huge in terms of evidence. Also, another evidence for the fact that Jesus really lived is B.C. and A.D. Somebody help me out. What does B.C. stand for? Right. Before Christ. Anybody know what uh, A.D. stands for? All right, Anno Domini, right, in the year of our Lord, after the death of Christ. What we have here in most books, now students, when you go back to school, I know you'll, you know, you don't want that to happen, but you, you will, sorry, it'd be a, bear, a bad tidings, you will go back to school. All right, we don't have any weeping or gnashing of teeth as of yet. 
But when you go back to school, what you will notice in some of your textbooks is they do not use B.C. and A.D. anymore, but instead they use B.C.E., which means before the common era, and then C.E. instead of A.D. for the common era. And here's, here's the skinny of it. People are trying to get away from the fact that Jesus is Lord. I mean, that's just what it is. So students, if somebody, if you're in class and you say A.D. or B.C. and your teacher corrects you and says, no, it's B.C.E. before the common era and it's C.E. for the common era, very respectfully, very humbly, very Christ-like, say, well, what made the difference between before the common era and the common era? Well, there was probably an event somewhere in the time. Well, what exactly was it? Check this out. However you frame the question, the answer is still the same. That Jesus split history. Amen? Then if you go to the website infidels.org, doesn't that sound like a winner? www.infidels.org There's an article by a scholar named Marshall Galvin. And here's what he says about Jesus. And the article is entitled, Did Jesus Christ Really Live? He says the Jesus Christ of the Gospels could not possibly have been a real person. He is a combination of impossible elements. There, but then he, then he kind of takes a little step back. He says there may have lived in Palestine 19 centuries ago a man whose name was Jesus, who went about doing good, who was followed by admiring associates, and who in the end met a violent death. Now, why would he say? that the historical Jesus was nothing more than a combination of impossible elements. Do you know why this atheist scholar would say impossible? Not because he's smart, but because he has a commitment to what's called materialism, which means that God doesn't exist. Now go with me on this one. If God doesn't exist... Is it possible for anybody to actually be physically dead for three days and then supernaturally come back to life? No. If God doesn't exist, He's right. If God doesn't exist, once you're dead, you're dead. You will not see your family members who have served Christ and died and gone on before you. There is no hope. There really is no point in existence. But if you come to the evidence with an open mind and you don't have to craft everything to a belief called atheism, then here's what the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ proves. Here it is. It not only proves that God exists, because how could God not exist if Jesus came back from the dead? And furthermore, what it proves is that God does miracles. If you look at the evidence from an open mind, that's what it will lead you to conclude. And what it also solves is what some philosophers call the hiddenness of God. One time Bertrand Russell was asked the question, here he is. They said, what, what would you actually say if, if, if you... If you Die and God actually does exist. And he would say, I would ask God, Sir, why have you taken such pains to hide yourself? Well, friends, God is not hidden. How do we know that? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. Y'all okay with that? 
When you look at the evidence of Scripture, you see that when Jesus came back from the dead, it demonstrated that God is real and that God is true and that God can change lives. And you think about the disciples, man. They were up in the upper room, right? A bunch of dudes, a bunch of guys. Ladies, this is the story that the disciples probably wouldn't have wanted the women to hear. But a bunch of guys and they're upstairs in a room and they're scared to death. They're breaking every man code known to man and womankind. And yet, how do you explain the change, the change from this group of scared men to flaming evangelists going into all the world, preaching the gospel that Jesus is risen from the dead? So I'm sorry, Mr. Russell. You come to the evidence with an open mind. You'll conclude that Jesus was not only a real person, but he's a real savior. Amen, church? There's a scholar named Otto Betts. He says, No serious scholar has ventured to postulate the non-historicity of Jesus. That's a big nerd way of saying that if you don't believe that Jesus was a real person, you probably have three or four of the golf tees left on the triangle game at... (laughs) Some of y'all know where this is going, right? At the Cracker Barrel. And you would be an ignoramus. All right, let's just be honest. And Jesus actually existed. So notice the first prophecy there. We're going to run through these very quickly. And you notice like, man, Jeff, so much of this sermon has been preparation and introduction. It has to be that way. Otherwise, people are thinking about things such as Nostradamus, about Bertrand Russell, about Richard Dawkins. And those things have been disproven by history and logic. So here we go. Number one, here's the first prophecy that the Messiah would be born by a woman. Genesis chapter three, verse 15. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Literally, you shall crush Man, that is an awesome thing. And it's speaking in reference to snakes being, being somewhat of a representation of, of the demonic powers. And when I was growing up in Louisiana, or when I was 15 and 16, we would go out in the swamps, the levees, basically every day, and we would kill snakes. Yes. Say, man, Jeff, what were you doing? Fulfilling prophecy, baby. That's what we were doing. I mean, God, this was given, <laughs> this was given in around 1400-ish B.C., That's a long time to be alive. Amen? So Jack, they got you by a few. And then in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that they might receive adoption as sons. Now this is huge. Say, Jeff, why is it huge that the Messiah would be born from a woman? Well, all of Greek and pagan mythology... They describe the gods in terms of doing things without any relation to mankind other than things that we won't mention because we have children in the room. But when God... Think about this. Talk about God. Capital G. God. Who said that He's going to send His Redeemer, His Son, the Messiah, into the world, but this Messiah would be born with flesh and blood. He would not be a spirit. He would not be Casper the ghost. He would not be some half type of mythological creature. But he would be born with the ability to feel pain, to feel hunger, to sweat, and even to cry. And what this shows is Satan, anything that you have 
to try to derail the plan of God will never work. So please hear me. Satan and God are not in a boxing ring going at it. Satan is a dog on a leash. Any of y'all remember those and one shirts back in the 90s for basketball? The and one shirts. And it had a guy driving to the basket that said, I'm the bus driver. I take everybody to school. God is the bus driver. And if you're here today and you do not believe in Christ, you will never take God to school. You must repent of your sin and be born again. Secondly, the Messiah would not only be born of a woman, but he would be born from the Hebrew nation. Genesis chapter 12 deals with this in detail. When Jesus was born, Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, he was born from the Hebrew nation. Now, why would God, if God didn't know the future, say, you know what? The Messiah is going to be born of this small group of people called the Jews. And not only that, you see third, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, that Jesus, the Son of God, will be born Not just from a woman, not just from Israel, but from the tribe of Judah. Now, when God did this, he was eliminating 11 out of 12 tribes. Is God backing himself into a corner? Not if he knows the future. It's fulfilled in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14. In Matthew chapter 1, Jesus was born there in the line of David. That's number four. Jeremiah 23, verse five. We're just going to go through some of these. I'm not going to read every passage. I'm just going to explain them um, because we would be here literally all day. I didn't hear any amens. Okay. We'll just, in a, all right, cool. We, we got also Revelation chapter five, verse five. I got to read this one. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David is conquered and he can Open the scroll and his seven seals. Man, you've got John and he's in heaven and he's looking around. There's no one to open this scroll, this seal. And they say that Jesus, who was born of not only a woman, not only the Hebrew nation, not only the tribe of Judah, but a specific family, the family of David. And that's fulfilled in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. And it speaks of him sitting on the throne of his father, David. Number five, that he would be born of a virgin. We've heard this verse many times. Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, given around the eighth century BC. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Hello, here's the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and his name shall be Emmanuel. Imagine that dads, moms, your daughter comes in. She says, I'm pregnant. She's not married. And she says, God did this. Notice the tacit humor here. The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Wouldn't we say that a virgin with child might be a little bit of a sign? Maybe. Just putting it out there. An unmarried, chaste woman who had never been with a man and now she is with child. That is what you call a sign. It's fulfilled. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hundreds of years after it was given. Number six, Messiah would not only be born out of a specific line, but he'd be born in a specific town. Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. This was literally, once again, in the 8th century B.C. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, if you would have been making this up, some people say, now Jeff, people make up the Bible, or they made it up. 
Um, we have great links on our site. We encourage you, if that's a question that you have that's legitimate, go there, research it, find out the truth for yourself. But if you would have made this up, say something like Jerusalem, right? Say something like Rome. Say something like big city. Like Bethlehem would make Endicott look big. That might be a comparison example. It's a tiny little bitty place. And remember, Jesus was raised not in Bethlehem, but in Nazareth. They were only there for a certain amount of time to pay taxes. And they were there because tax slater and e-file and electronic filing hadn't yet been invented. Y'all okay? Man, that one was like a lead balloon. Let's just go on. And you think about all of the chances that it could have been that Jesus would be raised somewhere else and be born somewhere else. It is incredible, the preciseness of God's word. Number seven, the Messiah would be worshipped by wise men and given gifts. Isaiah chapter 60. This is fulfilled in the second chapter of Matthew. When the wise men came, we don't know how many there are. Let me say it again. We don't know how many wise men there were. But we know that they gave three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Number eight. The Messiah would be in Egypt for a time. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. This was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Remember, Herod the psychomegalomaniac realized that this new king might take away his kingship, so he was going to go and kill every child under the age of two in the town. And so they fled to Egypt. How could that be if God does not know the future? Number nine, Messiah's birthday place would suffer a slaughter of children. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15 predicts this. Matthew chapter 2 verses 16 through 18 fulfills it. That's when Herod sent the soldiers and they did exactly that. Number 10, the Messiah's possessions would be gambled for at his execution. This was given in Psalm chapter 22 verse 18, around 1,000 years before Jesus was ever born. Here's what it says. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And the soldiers crucified Jesus. They took His garb. They took His garment. And in verse 24 of John chapter 19, they fulfilled the prophecy. Verse number 11, the Messiah would be crucified and die. Psalm chapter 22, in verse 16, It says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Now, this was written by King David. And people say King David was incredibly depressed. And he was. But when he's talking about piercing... What's it say? Piercing the hands. It means... And what is it there at the end of verse 16 in Psalm chapter 22? And his feet. How could David, as a Near Eastern king, know about this type of execution? Because it hadn't even made it into that type of the world. That would be like someone thousands of years ago talking about lethal injection by IV when none of the technology existed at that time. How in the world could David have known that? And by the way, if you have Jewish friends, and let me just say say a little note. I believe that the church as a whole, we have neglected the Jewish people. Um, If you have Jewish friends, take the gospel to them. This is an incredible passage to use with them. In verse number, um, John chapter 19, verses 23 and 24, it was the fulfillment. He was in number 11, Psalm chapter 22, speaking of piercing his hands and feet, this was fulfilled 
when Jesus was crucified. Also in Isaiah chapter 53, it has a verse there in number 5 that says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. It speaks of Jesus being bloodied and, and brutalized and beaten to a pulp and killed for us so that we could have the chance of being forgiven. Number 11. This was fulfilled in Luke chapter 23. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. This is an amazing verse. It says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 8th century B.C. Who was Jesus crucified between? Talk to me. Two thieves. What's the text say? He made his grave with the wicked and then in, with a rich man in his death. Anybody remember the first name of the man that Jesus was buried in his tomb? Jo- what? Joseph, Joseph was a good man. And Joseph of Arimathea, he was a rich man. Now what an amazing thing that a rich man said, Jesus can use my tomb. But he knew that Jesus only needed it for the weekend. Y'all like that? It's good news, isn't it? Amen. Finally, number 12. It was prophesied in Psalm 16, verse 10, that the Messiah would rise again once he was dead. It says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is the grave nor let your Holy One see corruption. This was fulfilled, Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 8, when the women went, came and they found the tomb open, an awesome thing. And Jesus said, who are you seeking? And they told him, he says, why do you seek the living among the what? The dead. That's why Paul concludes. Notice verse number 6. Verse 5 and 6, rather. He says, through whom... We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for His name among all the nations. Friends, the question of this passage is now that if we've come to the question with an open mind and just look at the evidence, we realize that Jesus was born and that He fulfilled prophecy and that He died according to the Scriptures and He was raised again. So the question for us, since we know that Jesus is the Son of God, What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Some of you, you need His assistance. You need His help. You need His deliverance in your marriage. Some people here say, Lord, I need you to help me. I have this habit. I have this sin that is besetting me. It's holding me back from serving you. Submit to Christ today. What will you do with Jesus? Because the Bible does say that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when it says all nations, can you imagine how that's going to be? Imagine that one day we're going we're to be standing before God and He's going to be so holy. That, that the Bible says that even the angels, they, they, they cover their, their faces because they cannot look upon Him. And we'll be in the presence of God and all of these things that we seek after and money and fame and all your know, retirement, all those things will have been passed away and we'll stand before God. And there in that day, what we've done with Jesus in this life will make the difference of where we'll spend the next. The Bible says, repent, repent, repent over and over and over. That means to change your mind and organize your life in connection with Jesus. For some of you, God's told you you need to join this church. He's given you a clear sense in your spirit to come be a part. Some of you, He said, you know what? I've saved you. I've changed your life. You need to be baptized and follow me. We give the invitation in just a few moments. We're asking you to come. There's some of you here today who said, Jeff, I've never given Christ my life. I know about Him, 
but I've never actually received Jesus by faith. I've never turned from my sin and received Him as boss and master of my whole destiny. Today, do that. Trust Christ. You can do it right now. There in the seat. And trust Him with everything that you have. And God will never let you down. The question is, what are we going to do with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we just want to give this time to You. This time of commitment. This time of invitation. We've looked at a lot of stuff today. It's been somewhat deep. But Lord, the, what You call us to do is, is not very difficult. It's just to listen to Your voice and to do what You say. Lord, for the person here today who's never been saved, we ask God that You would help them to cry to You right now just to be saved, that You would save them right there in their seat. And when we give the invitation that if anybody needs to make a decision, commitment to You that they get up out of Your seat, come down to the front to show people that I am not ashamed of Jesus. Because He died for me, I will live for Him. We ask this in Your name. Amen.